Al Jazeera podcast. A prisoner swap between the U.S. and Iran. It's a rare agreement between two nations long at odds on nearly all fronts. So, does this deal signal a new dawn in relations? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Joining us from Tehran is Fawad Izadi. He's the head of the American Studies Department at the University of Tehran and a specialist in U.S.-Iran relations. Roxanne Farman Farmayan joins us from London. She's a lecturer in modern Middle East politics at the University of Cambridge and a specialist on Middle East security. And Scott Lucas joins us from Birmingham. He's a professor of U.S. and international relations at University College Dublin and the founder and editor of the online news site EA Worldview. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Fouad, let me start with you today. Uh, Iran and the U.S. have carried out a prisoner swap as part of a Qatar-mediated deal. Uh, experts believe that this prisoner swap may be a step toward de-escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran. What do you think? Is this just a one-off, or could this lead potentially to a thaw in relations? You know, I don't think it's going to be a major shift uh, in U.S. policy towards Iran. I think uh, the Biden administration either is unwilling or unable to correct the past mistakes of previous administrations and come to a policy that's actually working for the United States. Uh, but I think uh, if you get these type of agreements, uh, small agreements, you can eventually reach in a stage where the confrontation is not something that both sides mm. worry about on a daily basis. So it's not going to resolve any major issues, but I think it's one step in, in the right direction. Yeah, Fouad, and that's what I actually wanted to follow up and ask you about next, because uh, President Raisi, when he arrived in New York for the UN United Nations General Assembly, um, uh, he told media there that this could be a step in the direction of a humanitarian action between us and America. I mean, at the very least, do you think that this could lead to more dialogue? You know, Iran and the United States uh, have been talking for many years uh, during the Obama administration. Iran's foreign minister uh, broke all the records with regard to the number of hours that he negotiated with the U.S. foreign minister. Uh, that's Javad Zarif and John Kerry. Uh, and Iran and United States have been indirectly talking for many, many months now. Uh, so uh, that's not a, a major problem. The problem uh, is basically the difficulties that we have in the U.S. Congress. We have the Republicans that oppose any type of reapproachment with uh, Iran or uh, lowering of tensions with Iran. And we have some powerful Democrats, like uh, Robert Menendez, who is the uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the U.S. Senate, uh, that uh, are not in line with the Biden administration's policies towards Iran, he opposed the nuclear agreement in 2015. Mm. He opposes the nuclear agreement now. Uh, I, I think that level of confrontation is much more in Washington when you compare that to Tehran. In Tehran, generally, people want to see lesser tensions between Iran and the United States. 
Roxanne, I saw you reacting to some of what Fuad was saying, so I'm going to give you a chance to jump in. And I want to get your take on this. I mean, what do you say? Is this prisoner exchange going to lead to more dialogue between the U.S. and Iran? Um, you know, Iran and the U.S. rarely agree on anything, so this is clearly a rare event. How significant is it? Well, I think it certainly was a prerequisite to then proceeding on to possibly restarting the nuclear negotiations. I think it is indicative of the fact that there are going to be small de-escalatory steps that are taken. I think both um, Iran and the United States are seeing the advantage of undergoing and undertaking transactional deals that are limited in scope and where both countries can claim a, a win. And this definitely fell into that category. So I think there will be future uh, smaller scale negotiations. There are a number of pots of money of Iran's uh, all over the world. Uh, so there's possibly one already being discussed that is sitting in Japan. And every uh, one of these negotiations, there are elements that both sides can win or can, can gain from, and then both sides have a degree of compromise that they can offer. So I think they're trying to reduce the, te the temperature at the moment, and I think what we're going to see is quite a few of these where both states are trying to get something out of it, particularly as Biden moves into a an election year. Mm. And uh, in Iran, of course, there's the presidential election is only six months after the American election. So um, they, too, will be looking for specific areas of achievement in uh, in these negotiations. Scott, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken seemed to leave the door open to potential diplomacy on the nuclear file going forward. Uh, he described it as perhaps the number one issue of concern, but he also suggested that nothing was imminent. Um, do you think this is the stance of the Biden administration behind the scenes as well? The reflection of reality. The ball is in Tehran's court on the broader question regarding the nuclear talks. Uh, and I think Mr. Dr. Azadi gave us a very important clue here, which is that they have no real willingness at this point to really drive those talks forward. Let's get some facts on the table that are very important here. First of all, the past, in early 2022, we were close to a settlement uh, to revive the 2015 nuclear deal, getting the Americans back in after the Trump administration's withdrawal, beginning to lift American sanctions, and it was Iran that backed the way. They backed away initially over the question of the status of the Revolutionary Guards. Then they backed away crucially over the question of inspections of nuclear facilities to September 2023. And that is, even as you and I are talking about, thank goodness, the release of these hostages from Iran in exchange for the $6 billion in Iranian funds, Iran has stepped up the restrictions on the inspections of the nuclear facilities. They are refusing to give up the video surveillance tapes. They are refusing to put cameras back into the facilities. And in the past few days, they have withdrawn the accreditation, de-designation it's called, from one-third of the IEAA inspectors. So in other words, they're taking a harder line on inspections as they continue to step up production of uranium in violation of the 2015 agreement. So while the foreign ministry says, we want a deal with the Americans, they said that two weeks ago, 
other elements in the Iranian leadership are taking that harder line, which is we, in fact, are not giving any ground on inspections or on verification of our nuclear program. And I think Dr. Izzati's stance that he's not expecting a breakthrough in the talks, it reflects that Iranian leadership's position. Uh, Fouad, uh, did you have any reaction to what uh, Scott was saying there? Because he was saying uh, that essentially Iran is taking a harder line towards uh, inspections by the IAEA. And I want to get your take on this. I mean, when it comes to potentially getting around a negotiating table again for the JCPOA, uh, for the nuclear deal, is that something you can see happening? Can progress actually be made? I agree with uh, Scott. Iran is taking a harder line. And the reason is that uh, the announcement uh, for what Iran has been doing in the last number of days came after the European uh, members of uh, JCPOA, uh, France, uh, UK, and Germany, announced that uh, October 26th, when the sanctions, a number of sanctions on Iran under JCPOA is supposed to be lifted, they are not going to accept uh, that part of JCPOA. They are going to do what the Americans did in 2018. In 2018, uh, Trump left the nuclear agreement, and the Europeans, a few days ago, announced that they are going to officially violate the nuclear agreement. You know, it is not possible for Iran to unilaterally follow a multilateral agreement. If the other side uh, leaves the agreement, if they don't want to follow their part of the bargain, it's not logical for Iran to follow what Iran is supposed to do. Mm. Uh, and the basic message is that if you cause difficulties for Iran, if you uh, violate the agreement that uh, was agreed upon in 2015, that's going to have some cost. Mm. And the cost is you are not going to have as much as access as you had before. What Scott said is correct. So when you uh, don't allow one-third of the inspectors to continue their work, that means that two-thirds of the inspectors are continuing mm. their inspection. So it's, uh, you know, this, the coin has two sides. Uh, Scott, I, I know you want to jump in, but I need to get a question to Roxanne first, and then I'll give you an opportunity. Uh, Roxanne, I want to... Take a step back for a moment. Uh, you know, getting to this point when it comes to the prisoner swap, it took two years of intense negotiations that were mediated by Qatar. Um, this has been a successful outcome for Qatar, um, but the second year of the negotiations saw mediators shuttling between hotels in Doha. That means that both sides of this, the Americans and the Iranians, never met face to face. So I want to ask you just how difficult it was to get to this point. Well, the Iranians and the Americans have made an art out of negotiating without being face-to-face. -face. The same thing was going on in Vienna during the JCPOA negotiations, where it was the Europeans that were shuttling between them. So um, I think it's very difficult. I think it's when people do establish rapport personally that, you know, greater breakthroughs can take place. But I think this is the landscape. And to go and, and address a couple of the points that both the other guests have made, it is a very toxic and extremely dangerous landscape. And I think it's always easy for one side or another to point out what, the, uh, what either Iran or the United States has done. But it's just been a series of usually 
uh, setbacks and then the occasional breakthroughs. Because another thing, of course, that happened right before the prisoner swap, 24 hours before, was that the United States uh, posed further sanctions on Iran due to the Masa Amini situation. It happened to be an anniversary right at that point. And they imposed sanctions on further authorities in Iran uh, that are in the security area. So it just doesn't help very much, in my view, to look at a tit for tat. What I think is important is for us to see that it's a very high priority. Blinken has made this clear for the United States to, to begin to help to reduce the amount of stockpiling that's going on. And I think Iran sent a uh, a signal about that in that uh, as the, the negotiations for the prisoner swap were wrapping up, it dropped its its stockpiling of 60% uh, enriched uranium for the first time. So I think it's these subtle uh, signals that need to be picked up that can be the indicator that actually there is very much a chance of a next step. Uh, Scott, all right, I saw you also reacting to some of what Roxanne was saying there too, so please uh, go ahead. Professor Farnham, my hand has put it very, very well in terms of reading the signals that are coming from both sides. So it's important to look further ahead. Uh, I mean, Dr. Zadi's argument that this is all because uh, the European powers said that they were not going to lift all the measures uh, come October is quite frankly a bit of nonsense. The fact of the matter is, is that to expect the European powers, let alone the United States, to withdraw all the provisions of the 2015 nuclear deal, given that Iran has stockpiled 60% uranium, even though it has slowed the production down slightly in the last quarter, to expect everyone to effectively say, well, that's it. There's absolutely no reason why Iran should have any uh, terms with which it has to comply. That's ridiculous. And so for Iran to then put its fist down and say, well, that's it. We're going to restrict inspectors. We're going to continue, as we have done for two years, to not allow any access to video of our nuclear facilities. You know, if at some point, because of the Iranian economy, uh, although this will be assuaged a bit by the $6 billion they're getting under the terms of the uh, release of the political prisoners. At some point, because of the Iranian economy, they're going to have to come in from the cold and talk seriously about trying to get an agreement, which on the one hand does begin to lift the American sanctions, does begin to remove those sanctions that have been in place for years, gets the U.S. back in the agreement, but also returns Iran to the compliance of the nuclear deal, which says... 3.67% uranium production is what you responsibly should be producing. Now, at this point, when they're producing 60%, that's mm. a huge gap. And I'm afraid that's a gap that may not be easily managed before we get into the U.S. and the Iranian parliamentary elections in 2024. Scott, you mentioned uh, something that I wanted to ask you about next, uh, the $6 billion in unfrozen assets. You also said something made me think of that. You talked about signals coming from both sides. And what I'm getting at here is the fact that in the past couple of weeks, you've heard different officials in the U.S. and in Iran describing how this money could be used. So you have U.S. officials maintaining that these funds can only be used um, for humanitarian needs. But there are also Iranian officials who over the course of the last couple of weeks have suggested the money could be spent wherever they want to spend it. Which is it? I mean, is this up for debate or is this something that has been clearly delineated in this agreement? Under the terms of the deal, 
that six billion is to be managed coming out of Qatar. It is to be overseen there. It is not being overseen by Iranian officials. It is to be dispensed for food, for medical items, for other items that are deemed to be humanitarian. So as the head of the central bank in Iran admitted uh, a few weeks ago when this deal was being struck, no, Iranian officials do not control that six billion. And for President Raisi to say otherwise, it's misleading, probably for domestic consumption. Now, it is the case, and this is something which people are debating, that Iran does have a bit of flexibility because money that it spends on food and medicine internally, now that it can draw it from the six billion pot, they could use that money for food and medicine for other items. They could use it for other domestic programs. They could even use it for the military, a point that critics of the deal have been pointing out. But no, on the fundamentals, Iran does not have unrestricted access to that $6 billion when it is finally placed in Qatar and overseen by Qatari authorities. Roxanne, earlier you talked about the fact that uh, President Biden is heading into an election year in the U.S. in 2024. And I, I want to ask you how this deal might impact him politically in the U.S. going forward and how worried the Biden administration might be when it comes to the ramification of it. Uh, because we've kind of seen the Biden administration be a little bit on the defensive about this, saying that this was not a ransom, uh, talking about how they are still taking a tough stance toward Iran. So is there a lot of concern privately amongst Biden officials about how this could impact him? Uh, and, and could it have negative ramifications on him domestically in the U.S. going forward? Well, of course, his, uh, op the opposition, the, the Republicans are going to make this case. But the fact uh, is that this is Iranian money. It is not a ransom. And in fact, my understanding of the terms is that should there be any uh, abuse or uh, lack of transparency that the United States can uh, restrict the further use of whatever funds remain. So it's got a, a safety latch on it. And in terms of where Biden is going with this, I think the humanitarian side is a big plus for him. And he is that kind of president that emphasizes that kind of thing. And so it was a big PR day for him and played well in that situation. And I think, yes, the concern on the part of the Republicans is that there will be expenditures possibly in areas uh, now that the Iranians can direct this these funds to, where in the past they were buying food and, and medicine. But if you look at the Iranian budget, the defense and security uh, communities, ha sectors have been extremely well funded. So it's more likely that these funds will be used to relieve some of the pressures on the rising poverty and the, the extenuating cir circumstances brought about by a declining economy for no other reason than to um, um, improve the, the atmosphere by the public uh, towards the, the government and to um, help reduce the amount of grievances that are at the moment sloshing around in Iran. Fuad, so we were just talking about what impact uh, this deal might have on President Biden in the U.S. I want to ask you about how this deal might potentially help President Raisi in Iran. Um, what has the reaction been thus far from the general public? From your point of view, do you think this is something 
that will um, strengthen him among his supporters? Or do you think this is something that could potentially, you know, cause him any kind of political peril in Iran? Uh, I think uh, the agreement uh, yesterday, the exchange is going to help uh, President Raisi internally. Uh, he is showing that he is able to achieve this type of uh, agreements. Uh, it's going to help uh, Iran with its uh, finances. Uh, so Iranians are uh, happy. Uh, Americans are happy, with the exception of some Republicans and some professors that uh, are missing the points on Iran. And uh, South Koreans are happy because they can have uh, normal economic relations with Iran, uh, given the fact that this issue is off the table. Israelis are not happy, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, the Israeli-supported uh, Iranian opposition is obviously not happy. But overall, I think this was a good agreement. And uh, if Biden wants to have a correct policy towards Iran, he could uh, return to the agreement today. I teach uh, American government at the University of Tehran. Under the American system, the new president can nullify the executive orders of the previous president. So what Biden could do on the first day of his presidency and what he could do today is to return to the agreement, give Iran two or three months to go back to compliance, and uh, Iran would do that uh, probably in just a few weeks. Mm. The fact that we are having this conversation is because of the chaos in Washington and because of the wrong uh, recommendations that uh, uh, people in the U.S. government are getting from the so-called Iran experts that uh, seems to know mm. nothing about Iran. Scott, uh, we only have about a minute and a half left, but I could see that you wanted to jump in, so uh, please go ahead. I think at the end of the day, trying to blame one side or just the other, well, that's just a bit of posturing, and we can put that aside. The fact of the matter is, is that there is a fundamental, two fundamentals here. One is, is that we have got a very limited deal, which Iran struck because it needed money for its economy. Uh, we need to have good faith measures on both sides to advance on the nuclear program. But secondly, the equally important story this week was the fact of the ongoing protest in Iran for rights, for reform, for justice. The Iranian leadership in part tried to use this story to deflect from those protests, which they have brutally tried to repress. And going into 2024, as important as the nuclear deal is as a topic of discussion, equally as important are those social movements within Iran trying to find space to freely express themselves and not be repressed. So we'll be watching both stories at the same time. And, uh, Fouad, I also saw you... Uh, yeah, I saw stop, you wanted to jump in there, Fouad. Please yes, go ahead. Stop sanctioning, stop sanctioning Iranian people. If you're interested in human rights of Iranians, stop sanctioning them instead of increasing I, sanctions. I know the Iranian people. Engage I know in this the Iranian people. I taught at your, I taught, yeah, I I taught at so. your institute in Tehran. So. My friends are at your institute yes. in Tehran. Yes. I, I, I know the Iranian people. I know that people. was a mistake. I hope that you was will a mistake we have. Honestly, yes. about the Iranian people. Don't lecture yeah, me about yes. the, the honest, Iranian people. The honest thing you is that Iranians, Iranian Iranians don't like to be Thank sanctioned. You. And supporting sanctions against Iranian people is unjustifiable, it's, uh, it's immoral, and, and it's a corrupt they want policy rights. practice. They want it's rights not going to work and they want rights. They want rights and social freedoms as well, don't they? 
All right. Yeah, well, they, we they, have, they have we, rights. They have social freedoms. They don't need any recommendations from people like you. Thank you. Fouad, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Fouad Izadi, Roxanne Farman-Farmayan, and Scott Lucas. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Omikal Sum Sharif, Gabriella Ferber, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Fadzil Yahya. The program was edited by Anil Anandan, Zaina Badr, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, what's the appeal of Andrew Tate's toxic masculinity in Romania and beyond? That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.